Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. The other week while I was uh, looking on Facebook, I saw uh, a post from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation that featured its president, Will Baker, and a friend uh, in a very powerful statement. Um, I think it was March the 16th you did this? Yes. When it was announced that uh, Donald Trump is going to cut the funds for the Chesapeake Bay program, EPA's Chesapeake Bay program. That was part of the cuts for the EPA. And he made a very impassioned plea uh, to all of us to wake up. Um, and, Will, it's good to have you in the studio. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. And before we start talking to Will, let me let you hear the words that he uttered that day on this one-take video that went viral, where millions are kind of looking at it. We'll be right back. The bay is getting better. More oysters, more crabs, more rockfish, better water clarity, better underwater grasses, lower dead zones, less dead zones. It's working. And somehow, for some reason, the Trump administration is planning to cancel it. It's madness. We don't understand it. We can't really believe it. So that that was what you posted. How many, how, how many people have seen this so far? Uh, what our IT, IT people say is it's a million and growing. <laughs> I love it. One point two, something like that. Now you didn't expect that. So it's, 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 before we get into the heart of the, of the importance of the issue that you outlined uh, in this video, um, I'm curious to tell us the process and how this happened, why you decided to do this, what happened that day, and what was, what's the story behind it. So you want me to do that now, or yeah. you want to? No, no. Tell us now. Yeah. Uh, well, once we heard that the president had cut the bay, or that OMB had pro- uh, projected that they would cut. To zero the Bay Program funding, and then all the other agencies' fundings, we um, called for a press conference, telephonic press conference. We had a huge, um, I mean, thirty or forty people were on the line. We got Don Bosch as well, and when we finished oh, yeah. that, uh, we had six TV stations coming. And my folks said, "Look, let's just tape you, and we'll put it on Facebook." Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I walked outside and did one take. So, <laughs> you're going to take my job. So, so, um, so, so, taking a step backwards here, I mean, we've done a number of programs. Um, last week, we spoke with Mustafa Ali, who resigned from the EPA, who was the head of environmental justice yes. for them. Yes. And we've yes. been covering the custody EPA a lot over the last several weeks, I mean, really intensely. So, I, I mean, talk about what the effect of this is. I mean, of cut, how much money are we talking about cutting and what the effect is of cutting the Chesapeake Bay program money that was cut out of the budget by Donald Trump? Right. It's not necessarily done yet, but right. we'll talk about that right. too. Right. So. so what's the effect? Oh, what would be the effect if this went through? Well, what we think is that, you know, it's not unreasonable to say within 10 years the Bay could once again be a national disgrace. So we've seen so many improvements in the Bay. It's nowhere near fixed. It's not saved yet. But it's going in the right direction, and this literally just pulls the rug out from under it. I, I often use the expression snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. It, it's, it's unbelievable that something that is so uniquely successful in this country is being eliminated. And, and, and you know, with great bipartisan support, uh, six states all have voluntarily been assigned to be part of the program. The federal government is the, uh, uh, the the enforcer to make sure all the states are doing what they say they're going to do in two-year increments, which is important. I can talk about that. Um, they've already put pressure on Pennsylvania. Um, you know, uh, Congressman Harris, for instance, in Maryland here expressed real concern about not having hmm. EPA at the table to make sure Pennsylvania does the job it needs to do because if it doesn't, if it continues to not do the job it needs to do, you know, Maryland's water quality suffers. So <clears throat> because of the impact of the Susquehanna, right, which right. I can explain. Which we can talk about in a minute. So when you said six states, six states just for our listeners, we're talking about yep. the six states that make up the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Correct. New and York, I can, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, West Virginia. No. Good. West Virginia, D.C., and Virginia. Yes. Right. Not New Jersey, not which New Jersey. a lot of people think. Yeah. Right, right, because it's all to the west coming down. Yes. From the mountains. Yes. So, and that's been also politically not an easy. You're press. That's good. <laughs> We're doing this a little that's while. That's good. I know, but that all six states. That's good. That's most. So, um, so, but so, but it has no. In covering this for the last twenty-four years on the air, 
it's been very clear from interviewing people here and around the watershed, this has not been an easy trick to begin with. Correct. To get these states <clears throat> to line up on anything. Correct. Which is why, as you said in your former vi- another video, the report card for the Bay has gone from a D plus to a C minus. None of us would accept that for our kids or ourselves in school. So, right. Right. <laughs> but it's progress. Right but direction. And there, are, the- and there are three report cards. And ours was the first. We've, we've been doing it longer than anyone else. And we're also the toughest grader. But when we, when we started doing it, it was an F. So getting to a D right. was actually an improvement. <laughs> but now into the Cs, we're, we're, we're almost giddy. We're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, what, talk just politically why, A, this is important, but in the context of why it's been so difficult to really even get to the point that we've cleaned the Bay up to where it is now. I mean, it's not it's, – I've – I mean, it's been a tough fight. People have have different interests here. Absolutely. And what we see all the time is that uh, conservative, liberal, in between, people value clean water. And the Chesapeake Bay is an icon, not only nationwide but worldwide. Its improvement has been a hugely – a huge success story for which a lot of people are very proud so when you go after something like that, it it's, it's really gets to the gut of a lot of people's sentiment. And I think we're seeing that politically right now. So the, the – I guess what I'm trying to get to here is the, 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 since this is a, a, a multi-state agreement, mm-hmm. the EPA's role in this was to oversee it and make sure that the agreed-upon guidelines were enforced, Right. Right. If you think about the Bay Watershed, it's six states and the District of Columbia. Science says you have to treat the Chesapeake Bay as a single ecological system. No state can do that. No state can govern outside its boundaries. The only jurisdiction of government that can do what science says is the federal government. And so that's been EPA's role. But they have taken a very light hand. It's been very cooperative. They haven't told the states how to do it. They've only said to the states what is required to bring down the pollution. And then the states have been able to set up their own protocols. EPA approves them and monitors to see that they're actually doing what they said. So if the money's taken out, it's not, we're not talking about money t- being taken from the states to implement. Actually, we are. Two-thirds of the $73 million is for states. were direct grants to states and municipalities, like Baltimore, for pollution reduction. So, so the, but the, and the other part was for the EPA to administrate, be the administrator for all this? A, a number of things. One of the most important, we think, is the monitoring that EPA did. Knowing what the baseline right. is, what the improvement is, how the strategies are working – Take away monitoring, and it's like trying to fi- uh, fly an airplane without instruments. You're flying blind without monitoring to know how well you're doing. So that's a critical thing that will be lost. Technical assistance. Um, uh, coordination among all the states. So they're actually working together rather than at cross-purposes. All this is part of the $73 million, uh, Bay program. So the, the, the like politically – what is significant to us in, in our analysis here as we've been looking at the EPA, I mean, this has all been all part of Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and other people around Donald Trump who believe they have to get rid of the quote-unquote administrative state. And the constitutional questions around administrative law play into this because this is – does the EPA have the right authority and funds to to push states and localities into their agreements – and ensure that, like the, as in the Bay, being cleaned up. So this, and this is a really critical moment. Yes, you're, you're right on. And actually, what the EPA and the feds are doing is the result of a lawsuit that the Chesapeake Bay Foundation brought in federal court. And the settlement to that lawsuit was the establishment of this protocol. And what year was that? That was in 2008. And we negotiated in 2009. The executive order was signed in 2010. Um, and the, our lawsuit alleged that EPA was required to do this under the Federal Clean Water Act. And the uh, when it was challenged in court by those who – it was big agricultural lobbying associations that, that, that challenged it in federal court, they lost at every step. And the Supreme Court failed to hear the final appeal saying it was without merit. 
That's well, pretty. That's pretty important. It's impressive, but yeah. you have <clears throat> the new head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, who. I don't know if he was part of that lawsuit. and part of many lawsuits. He actually was. Thought, he was, he he was, was the Oklahoma, attorney general was, right. of Oklahoma, and right. he joined as a, uh, a Mickey. Right. So uh, so tell me what political you do now. I mean, so this means that you have senators and congressmen across these six states um, that are Democrats and Republicans. So what's the strategy here? Uh, this, of course, the president only proposes a budget. Right. And uh, Congress debates it, rewrites it. And then it's a negotiation back and forth with the executive branch. So the real action now for the next several months will be in Congress. And that's where we and others who have been cut, the Great Lakes, for instance, has also right. been cut to right. zero. So there and are the Gulf of Mexico is another place. Coalitions have right. been are developing. And um, as I said, we're we're seeing real uh, bipartisan support to reinstate the funding. There are letters being written to the president. Um, I think you know there'll be hearings, obviously. So, but it seems to me this has to be a. I mean, what you did in the video that day on the sixteenth uh, that went viral. I mean, it seems to me that that's part of what has to happen beyond Congress. Congress, oh yes, moves, can move slowly and they can be pushed back by all kinds of interests. I mean, and it seems to me it's the combined political weight of communities and environmental groups and local people gathering together somehow to say we can't allow this to happen and letting the representatives know we cannot allow this to happen. A- absolutely. The listeners are, are, have a huge role to play. I mean, there's got to be an uprising of concern from uh, from voters and from people letting their elected officials know that this is critical because there are going to be a lot of um, fights between Congress and the president for sure. Uh, we want to make sure, those of us who live in this watershed, want to make sure this rises to the top. So what... Where do you? See, I don't know if you can answer this question now or if it's inappropriate. But where, where do you see um, our congressional delegation in Maryland uh, standing on this? Do you think do you see unity here, or is there a difference because of the political spectrum of our representatives themselves? And where do you see this going? One hundred percent, really unity in Maryland, to, congressional delegation and the senators to ensure the funding remains. Yes, whole. interesting. So yes. do you know what the what that. <clears throat> what that dynamic is like in other parts of the watershed? Uh, I think it's probably strongest in Maryland. Um, We're seeing strength in Virginia with a little bit of um, uncertainty about the southwest corner of Virginia that's out of the Bay watershed. Uh, Pennsylvania is very important, and we hope to get a lot of sign-ons in Pennsylvania. Because there has been tension between Pennsylvania and Maryland over the Susquehanna yes. and come, the, the water's coming into Chesapeake Bay. That's been a point of contention, right? Yes, but it's very interesting, Mark. Uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time. A long time. And right. um, for years you would see denial in Pennsylvania. Now from the governor to the leadership in the General Assembly to editorial page writers, there's no denial of the role they have to play. There's not even a denial that they're behind. There's only – uh, differences of opinion as to how they're going to fund it, how they're going to uh, uh, meet the re- the responsibilities under this uh, agreement. So, what's your time frame here? Do you think, in terms of the, where, where this battle takes place? So right now, Congress is, uh, has this, these different budget proposals coming in, but they're stuck on, on Russia and they're stuck on other things. So, what what do you see politically? Is, is the time frame this? What are our congressional representatives saying? Um, has to be done in, is it two months, is it a month? Are we looking to the next year? Yeah, well, this is a budget that starts October 1st. Oh, so this so is the federal The soon. federal budget is October 1, September 30th. So there'll be a lot of work over the end of the spring and summer and next fall. But most federal budgets these days aren't approved on time. They have to enter into what's called a continuing resolution, and that continues the status quo from before. So... Um, right now, the program is still in place. Uh, we we want to keep it there. And it's this is really going to be an ongoing process. What the president seems to do is he throws out so much onto the table. And then it's, it's, the, it's his way of – it's the art of the deal if you read the book. And that's, this is the way he did it in the private sector. He throws out everything and then comes back and picks up what's really important to him. We hope in the end maybe this won't be one of the things he really fights for. <laughs> He's trying to get $50 billion out of discretionary funding to add to the defense budget. And that, that's where the that's ba- what's driving this. Right, and that is where the battle is going to, to yep. take place. Um, and uh, and it's, um, 
I mean, it's really an unknown because we don't know what he thinks or what he's going to take this and what this will mean. Right. So, so we're in the process of galvanizing these forces. Now, just take it back to the Bay for a moment before we conclude. I mean, um, because we talk about losing this money when some of us believe that you actually have to add more money to this battle. That's an important point. Right. If we're going to get the Bay to the place it needs to be. It's a I mean, very important point. The $73 million that was cut to zero was not enough. Right. So it should have been $100 million, $120 million, uh, because now's the moment in time for the Bay. Things are going in the right direction. We need to accelerate, not cut out, not pull the rug out. I mean, because you can't, as you said, you know, the battle around Susquehanna, which is not the entire issue with the Bay, but it's part of the issue. I mean, if, if we're going to be— Fifty percent of all fresh water entering the Chesapeake comes down the Susquehanna. Comes down the Susquehanna. It's equal to the James, the York, the Rappahannock, the Potomac, the Patuxent, all the eastern shore river. You add all those up, the Susquehanna is equal in flow to the combination of all the other big rivers. So, I mean, that's in part to me where more money has to come in because if you're going to have to work with large— animal operations in Pennsylvania, our own animal operations here, and other kind of farming as well as other pollutants that come in the Bay from industry, from paved roads and more. I mean, that's it's huge. Yes. You know? Pencil, Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania are 85% of the watershed. So they're the big players. Maryland and Virginia have to keep the momentum they've had. Pennsylvania's got to play catch up. And that requires money, technical assistance, resources, not only from this $73 million, but there are other agencies that have been cut. The Department of Agriculture, I think, is a 21 percent cut. That's right. Very important money for helping farmers with conservation. That's a, that money does not feed right into the Chesapeake Bay Fund, but it affects the Chesapeake Bay Fund. It absolutely does because there are uh, uh, about half a dozen federal agencies that are all partners. And USDA, the Department of Agriculture, is one of the partners with EPA in the Bay effort. So – and given the, the – the, the, uh, I mean, A, there's a battle to, to, to maintain the funds that are there. B, there's a conversation about more funds that are needed. And C, there's also this battle I think it's going to take place because there's an administration in Washington that believes that the administrative state is a problem and you want to, they want to get rid of it. So this is, this is, a, this is a many-pronged battle, but you're start, you, if, we don't, if, if the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and others do not win this part of the battle, then we're in trouble. Then we're in trouble. So tell me, what, what can folks do? Well, what people need to do is – uh, let their elected officials know in Congress, in the United States Senate. Uh, an email is good. A letter's better. The very best thing is to go to their office. And you can go to the district office. You can talk to staff. You don't have to be have a huge amount of technical information. All you really need to do is say the Chesapeake Bay and all the rivers and streams are important to me. Water quality is important to me. Keep the federal funding for them. That's really the message. So is there, oh, should people be in touch with CBF? People can go to our website, to our Facebook page. Um, we've got a lot of information. If you don't know, I, I hope most of our listeners do, who their congressmen are. They can go to our webpage and find out who and what the addresses are, how to write, how to call, telephone numbers, all on the website. All right, Will Baker, we'll put all that stuff on our website, and we'll talk about that at the end as well. I want to th- Will Baker is the president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, Will, I want to thank you so much for stopping by the studios today. Um, your video was very powerful, and, and uh, I'm glad it went viral, and they have a lot of work to do. So we'll stay on top of this with you and look forward to talking to you again very soon. Mark, you're terrific. Thanks so much. You are listening to Soundbites right here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. When we come back, we'll have more of the program. Don't go away. I want to remind you, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting overtesting to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show. And, of course, Sound Bites, our weekly look at food and farming, energy, and our environment, uh, where we wrestle with issues every week with you and for you. Uh, and what swirls around us, we're about now to talk to Bruce Friedrich, 
who is the executive director of the Good Food Institute and will be giving the annual Whittington Lecture at McDaniel College uh, on Tuesday, April the 11th at 7 p.m. This coming Tuesday. That's at Two College Hill in Westminster, Maryland. We'll tell you more about that. You can go to mcdaniel.edu for more information. We'll give you that information again at the end. But let me first uh, welcome Bruce Friedrich to the program. Bruce, welcome. Good to have you with us once again. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. So let's take a step backwards and just for our listeners, uh, talk a bit about uh, what the Good Food Institute is. Yeah, the Good Food Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're using markets and food technology to make the most sustainable and environmentally friendly choice, also the choice that's best for global health and animals, to make that the default choice. So we promote alternatives to animal agriculture, things like plant-based meat and clean meat and other alternatives, so that when people go to the marketplace and they're thinking um, about what it is that they want to buy, they don't actually have to think about ethics because the thing that they want to buy is the thing that's also most sustainable, most environmentally friendly, best for animals, and things like that. So let me take a step backwards. I mean, you, you, how long have you had the food, Good Food Institute? Uh, we launched on February 1st of 2016, so we're very new. Um, I started working on the organization the previous October, so... There were three of us um, from the previous October up until June, and then we were eight, and uh, now we have 15 full-time employees. People can find out all about GFI um, online at gfi.org. So it's the Good Food Institute, gfi.org. So, I mean, it, it, but look, and, and before that, you were with PETA. You've been, in this, you've been working around these issues for a long time now, right? Uh, yeah, I was vice president of campaigns at PETA for a bunch of years, and then I was policy director for another animal protection organization called Farm Sanctuary for five years. Um, and then I formed the Good Food Institute with some, some other animal protection advocates um, in February of 2016. And as I mentioned, we started working on it on the previous October. So but that... uh, we, we launched to the world with the website on February 1st, 2016. So, I mean, let's talk a bit about the, the two things you just said. I mean, when you said plant-based meats and clean meat. And, of course, I've, I've read some of the articles you've written in Huffington Post and other places about this. But but um, when you think about the two things I, people will think about when they hear that is, A, plant-based meat. Well, most of the meat we eat is plant-based. <laughs> let's start there. <laughs> so what what do you mean by plant-based meat? Yeah, so I guess I should back up, take one step back. And okay. Just say, so, so – Studies consistently show that the primary factors in pretty much everybody's food choices, their taste, their price, and their convenience. So those are the three things that everybody considers. If taste, you go to a price, convenience. You go to, right. Taste, price, convenience. If you go to a restaurant, if you go to a grocery store, and you ask people, why did you buy that? Why did you buy that? Why did you buy that? Like those are, I mean, taste and price are the main reasons. And then um, it's not there, they're not going to buy it. So convenience, obviously, also figures in It's certainly true that if you ask people, do you care about the environmental implications of your food, or what do you think about animal welfare, or what do you think about the health ramifications of your food, whatever, a a large number of people will say that they care. Uh, But if you actually look at what people are buying on restaurant menus, if you look at what people are buying in grocery stores, um, health to a degree, but it's everybody's thinking about taste, everybody's thinking about price, and then convenience is also um, critically important. So we started thinking about how do we move people off of consuming so many animal products? Because we know that raising animals for food is vastly inefficient. The most efficient meat is chicken. It takes nine calories into a chicken in the form of food to get one calorie back out in the form of meat. It's literally 800% waste. So an awful lot of people are concerned about food waste. You know, that's 40% of what we produce is thrown away, and we should be concerned about that. But inherent in eating meat, is 800% or more food waste, the stuff that's grown fed to the chicken that the animal has been simply existing or that goes into creating um, feathers or blood or bones or whatever. And it's even worse for pork. It's even worse than pork for beef. Um, Or you think about the harm to animals on these farms and in these slaughterhouses. You think about the climate change implications. You think about all the antibiotics that are used. Um, and we could educate people and say, hey, look at all of these harms, make different choices. Um, and we have been. You know, the, the environmental movement, the global health community, the animal welfare movement, we've been educating people for decades. And choices have not changed that much. 
So the brainstorm of the Good Food Institute is to say, look at what companies like Beyond Meat are doing and Impossible Foods and Hampton Creek. These companies, Beyond Meat says it wants to be the next great American meat company. Um, that's uh, the CEO of the company, a guy named Ethan Brown. And Impossible Foods, they were offered $300 million by Google to be acquired, and, and the founder turned it down. Um, his goal is to create plant-based meat, so it's a recognition that meat is made up of lipids and amino acids, and you know, they're constituent parts to meat. Let's create meat that tastes exactly the same, that's more efficient, that's cheaper, and let's put that side by side with the conventional meat with all of its harms and let people choose. And if it costs less and it tastes exactly the same and people can find it, it's convenient, um, we believe that people will, people will purchase it. So around that idea, and then we also have clean meat, which is real meat, so it's the exact same thing. It's actual, it's actual animal flesh. Uh, but instead of feeding crops to animals and growing the animals and shipping the animals to slaughterhouses and operating the slaughterhouses and all of the extra stages of production and all of the inefficiencies that are involved, instead we use standard tissue engineering techniques, standard techniques that are used to cause cells to multiply and grow. We take a biopsy about the size of a sesame seed from a chicken or a pig or a cow. Um, we feed the cells and cause them to multiply and grow, um, and it's about three times as efficient as chicken, um, significantly cleaner. So all of the salmonella and campylobacter and uh, E. coli, none of that happens. Um, it doesn't require all of the antibiotics that are fed to farm animals. So it's a much more efficient product, Product, 95% um, fewer global warming gases. And uh, it's just better all around. And uh, once that is less expensive, and it will be probably in about a decade, once that's less expensive, it's just a much better way um, to create actual real meat. So at the Good Food Institute, we have a team of scientists, we have policy experts, we have entrepreneurs, um, and we're working to basically, it's sort of a think tank um, slash policy shop slash incubator for the plant-based meat movement and the clean meat movement, and uh, taking ethics off the table, making the, the ethical choice the default choice. Now, now, I will say I've never tried either one. I mean, I've had protein burgers and more, and, um, I mean, uh, you know, the, the soy burgers and bean burgers, but I've never had either one of these two. So, um, and for some people, it could be a stretch. I mean, I saw this on Wikipedia, but I also saw it, it came out of a discussion we had on Winston Churchill in his program a few months ago, one of his quotes is, we shall escape, this is back in 1931, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under suitable medium. <laughs> so um, Winston Churchill had a real penchant for science fiction. He wrote, mm -hmm. he wrote a lot about that stuff, um, one of the more positive things about Winston. But anyway, um, <laughs> we'll leave that there. So, But the question was, so what does that really mean, though? So you're talking about... The idea of producing meat on a mass scale that is made from the tissue of an animal, but grown instead inside of a laboratory. Well, not grown in a laboratory. I mean, I think, think about it. Uh, it. It'll look like a meat brewery. So basically, it'll <laughs> a be meat, meat brewery. It, it'll be basically. It'll look like fermenters. It will look like a brewery. So. Instead of what you have now, which is these massive factory farms with all of these sort of Frankenstein animals who are pumped full of drugs and who can barely move by the time they're shipped to slaughter, um, you get rid of that, you get rid of the slaughterhouse, um, and you have a completely transparent process wherein um, you can have your sort of friendly neighborhood meat brewery. There will be that. There will also be sort of the Anheuser-Busch or the you know, Tyson of meat breweries. So you'll have the really big meat breweries as well. Um, but you'll have a much more efficient process, a much cleaner process, and you'll have a much purer product, the exact same product, except that um, it won't have the bacterial contamination, it won't have any of the drug residues, um, and you can see exactly how it's made. The, the two pioneers in clean meat, one of them is a guy named Mark Post, who was a Harvard Medical School professor for a number of years, um, and he got his first million dollars to work on this from Google co-founder Sergey Brin. 
The other one is a guy named Uma Valetti, also um, a doctor and medical school professor at the University of Minnesota, Mayo Clinic trained, um, president of both the Twin Cities American College of Cardiology and the Twin Cities American Heart Association. And Mark Post got into the idea of growing meat in this way because of his concern about the environment. Dr. Valetti got involved in uh, this because of his concern both about the environment and about animals. So these are two guys could, that could do anything with their lives. And what they want to do with their lives is make the meat supply um, safer and more efficient and better um, and make a meat supply that doesn't cause the harms of industrial animal agriculture. So uh, now you, you have that. When was the last time you ate meat? Um, well, I actually had some Memphis meat. Um, so a meat that was uh, Memphis meat is uh, Dr. Valetti's company. Right. So you go to memphismeats.com. Um, so the, the last time I had meat other than Memphis meats and other than plant-based meat was uh, 1987, so 30 years ago this year. But I had, uh, I had some Memphis meat chicken um, maybe two or three months ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's irrelevant what I thought. I thought it tasted exactly like chicken. Um, but <laughs> Memphis, Memphis meat has a bunch of meat eaters on staff, and they also say it tastes exactly like chicken. And they had a, they had a tasting event two weeks ago um, with about a dozen people, and I think three or four of them were vegetarians, but the rest were meat eaters. And they ate chicken, and they ate duck, and everybody said it tastes exactly like, um, and it should taste exactly like chicken and duck, because that's what it is. It's chicken and duck. But, but part, um, it is but part literally of, the sorry. exact same thing. But part of the thing about a chicken and duck or a, 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 or a, a cow, cattle, if you eat cows, um, and a sheep or lamb, whatever, um, is, is, the, is A, what it's fed, B, that it's grazing outside, C, is also the flavor the bone gives it. Um, and just speaking as an old chef, uh, old cook, um, so, it's, it's, it's like, and they can replicate that? They can, re- yeah, they can absolutely replicate all of it. Um, they can replicate all of it, and they are replicating all of it. So, I mean, initially, the initial products, so the products that will be cost competitive um, and available in a decade are going to be the ground meat products. Uh, but, uh, but they definitely have it in their site to do the more sort of nuanced, um, pork chops and steaks and chicken breasts and that sort of thing as well. Um, and they expect to be there in probably 15 years, maybe, maybe less. I mean, a lot of this is going to be contingent on venture capital funding, but uh, so far things are looking very good for the companies that are interested in this, interested in growing meat this way. So I'm curious, you know, when you, when you think about where most of the world is um, and the, <clears throat> as the world develops and we have these billions of people um, and people look to the West, uh, in terms of cons- consumer envy, because of you know we have explored the world to such an extent we have uh, all the consumer goods here as opposed to around the rest of the world. But there's a middle class growing in most countries in the world that also want the same things. So I mean, I, I, how do, how do you think the uh, a movement to build to counteract that, especially when it comes to uh, how we grow our food, how we get our food? I mean, it's, this is a very complex and complex subject to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard, hard to imagine anything significantly more complex. And I mean, the, the two big questions in food technology are, one, how do we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050? Um, and two, what do we do about climate change? And plant-based meat and clean meat, I mean, that, that's the answer to both of those questions to a substantial degree. And they fought, solve the farm antibiotics problem. They're healthier. They're better for animals. You know, er, Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google, I'm sorry, the chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, uh, Eric Schmidt was speaking at the Milken Global Summit last year, and he was asked to name um, things that he believes, technological innovations that he believes will improve life on Earth by a factor of at least tenfold in the fairly near future. And, you know, he's the chairman of the board of Alphabet, so he talked about things you would expect, things like self-driving cars and watches that alert your doctor that you're sick before you even know you're sick, and 3D printers for infrastructure and this sort of thing. But the first thing he talked about was plant-based meat. And the reason he said that he thought plant-based meat would improve life for humanity by so much and so soon is that he sees it as a more efficient way of delivering high-quality protein to the developing world, not the developed world, to the developing world 
in a way that doesn't exacerbate our climate change issues. And this is why people like Sergey Brin are funding clean meat. It's why Bill Gates is invested in plant-based meat. Um, this is, I mean, this is a solution to some of the really big, you know, some of the really big questions um, in food, and especially in in developing world economies. The thing that you were just talking about. This is a way that that people in the developing world will be able to have meat. They can have plant meat. They can have clean meat um, without, you know, it's a far more efficient product, and it, it won't destroy their environment. Uh, and, you know, the things we mentioned, I'm curious how people think about in terms of the human lives around them and what these new potential industries could mean. I mean, you mentioned self-driving cars, which is not your area, obviously, but you're focusing on the food, which is important for us to deal with in terms of how we're going to feed the world and have a planet that's healthier and doesn't destroy the earth. Um, of course, when people think about these things, how does that affect people and work and their employment, I think about because like with driverless cars, I've discovered through another interview that the single biggest occupation in the United States is driving something, whatever that might be, um, just driving something. So, wow. And so we think about these driverless cars, but we don't think about what that means for all the human beings who drive something. What happens to them? Where do they go? And so, you know what I'm saying? So, so I ask that question in the spirit of what, your world, and what do we think about in terms of what this will mean for the people involved in the who are involved in agriculture, who are involved in the, the industries that, that, that slaughter the meat, that bring us the things across the globe. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, we're talking about a, a huge industry um, that clearly is, is helping pollute the planet, but it's also made up of human beings who are surviving through that industry. I mean, I guess so, Mark. Um, but, I mean, certainly you look at the developed world and you look at the people who are working in these farms and the people who are working in these slaughterhouses. I mean, Human Rights Watch normally focuses on global human rights abuses. I'm not sure how often they've focused in the United States, but they actually called meat and poultry slaughterhouses America's number one human rights crime for the abuse of workers in these places. Former AP uh, reporter covering USDA and agriculture, Dan Leonard, wrote a book called The Meat Racket about the degree to which the people who own the chicken and pig farms are basically treated like surf laborers. I mean, it's like, I mean, you, you read this book and it's like borderline slavery, the way that the, right. oh, no, the absolutely. People, these people are treated. So, I mean, it, it's certainly true that agriculture has consolidated vastly and we have a fraction of the number of farms that we had um, even just 20 years ago, let alone 50, 75 years ago, and so on. And now, outside of the realm of cattle ranching, and cattle ranching is the one area um, where probably the people involved, at least on the ranch, um, are the people who actually own the cattle, and they're treated pretty well. But once those cattle get to slaughter, as well as all of the pigs and chickens at slaughter, those are just barely jobs worth having. Um, so... We are still going to have to create food, um, and I would imagine running um, a meat brewery um, or running a plant-based meat factory is going to be a heck of a lot better job than the current jobs in slaughterhouses and the current jobs on these farms, you know, other maybe than ranches. So I, there was an interview I saw, just to conclude here, the interview I saw that you did a little bit back talking about where you think the government might go and where we might go. Given this past election, I wonder you think, how do you think that interplays with the work you've been doing and the, the, the work you've been fighting for? Um, well, you know, it's a, the, the idea of using markets and food technology to um, solve problems is pretty bipartisan. I mean, the, the reason you see somebody like Peter Thiel um, as a the, as a special advisor, the venture capitalist Peter Thiel, um, as an advisor to Donald Trump, um, which obviously disconcerted a fair number of his Silicon Valley friends, mostly for social justice reasons rather than for economic reasons or sort of technology Silicon Valley um, core values reasons, is that whether you're talking to people whether you're talking to Democrats or Republicans, to conservatives or liberals, the idea of using behavioral economics, which is basically what we're doing, we're, we're making the default choice the better choice, 
the idea of using the behavioral economics is something that, you know, heritage can agree with Brookings and agree with Cato on. So um, there are certainly areas where regulation protects animals. Um, and that's actually, honestly, that, that suffers pretty badly under both Democratic and Republican administrations. <laughs> um, the Obama administration was a lot more open um, than the Bush administration. So getting the records would be here under the Obama administration. But enforcement of things like the Animal Welfare Act and the Humane Slaughter Act was no better um, under Clinton or Obama than it was under you know, Bush um, one or Bush two. Uh, but uh, but in terms of the stuff that we're looking at, in terms of um, in terms of promoting alternatives that will be healthier and more environmentally friendly, and so on, um, our expectation is, and we we hired our first lobbyist just a couple of months ago, and so far she's meeting with with sympathy um, and encouragement um, among both you know among even people in the Freedom Caucus. Well, we'll see how that all pans out. This is fascinating. It's always good to talk with you, and I just want to encourage folks. If this conversation has uh, piqued your interest, which I'm sure it has, I want to encourage you all to uh, make your journey over to Westminster, Maryland. This coming Tuesday, April the 11th uh, at 7 p.m., Bruce Friedrich, who is Executive Director of the Good Food Institute, will be talking in the McDaniel Lounge at 2 College Hill in Westminster at McDaniel College. It's open to the public, and more information is at www. McDaniel.edu or at 410-857-2290 for more information. And Bruce, I look forward to this conversation, and I really appreciate you taking time with our listeners today. Absolutely, Mark. It's, uh, It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. back. I'm Mark Gunnery, senior producer for the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. And I'm here with Mitch Jones, who's a senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. And Mitch, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mark. So on Monday, the Maryland Senate voted to ban fracking in Maryland, which sends it to Governor Hogan's desk. And he said he's going to sign it. Maryland would be the first state with shale gas to actually ban fracking through passing a law against it. So how did this law make it this far in a state with shale formations and a Republican governor, and why did it pass this General Assembly session? Well, Mark, I think that the the main reason why it passed is because there was a uh, many-year-long grassroots campaign that has built across this state, um, beginning with folks out in western Maryland who were going to be the first to be directly affected by this. Um, And... a a strong organizing campaign from grassroots folks, from statewide environmental organizations that built real political power and put real pressure on the members of the legislature as well as on Governor Hogan to ban fracking because it would be bad for not only Western Maryland but for all Marylanders. And so over the course of the campaign, uh, folks became more and more educated. They reached out to more people, more and more businesses, especially in Western Maryland, but farmers and restaurateurs from across the state became deeply involved. And I think that the reason why we were able to pass it this time around was uh, mainly because the the grassroots campaign had, you know, really culminated in real uh, real pressure on the legislature, as you know. Just a couple of weeks ago, over a thousand people came to Annapolis to march for a ban on fracking. That's, you know, really kind of an unprecedented event in Annapolis. I had folks who have worked uh, in Annapolis for you know fifteen, twenty years tell me it's the largest environmental demonstration that they've ever seen there. 
And it was only uh, about 10 days after that that the governor you know, announced his intention to support the ban. And so I think, you know, that folks began to realize that that this was a movement that had real people behind it, that it was a truly grassroots movement powering this, and that if the politicians didn't follow the people, they were going to have problems coming up next year in 2018. What do you think are the national implications of this? Like I said, it's... Um I know Vermont has a uh, fracking ban and New York have fracking bans, but um, what what are the national implications um, for other states, especially ones that already have fracking in place? Well, I think the national implications are, you know, great, actually. And I think that's why we saw this year, actually, the American Petroleum Institute made a major investment in trying to stop this ban from going forward. They ran radio ads across the state. They, um, you know, hired the usual high-powered lobbyists, and they they spent a lot of money to try to prevent this because they knew that beyond just a ban in Maryland, this legislative ban signed by a Republican governor will send a message across the country that fracking isn't a partisan issue. It's an issue about our public health and about our environment and about local economies. And so I believe that this is going to inspire campaigns across the country that are looking to ban fracking. You know, we in Maryland were inspired in December of 2014 when Governor Cuomo announced the ban on fracking in New York. I've spoken since Monday night with folks down in Florida where there's an active uh, piece of legislation that would ban fracking there uh, about the inspiration that they've taken from this. And I think that folks, you know, in California are looking to their governor, Jerry Brown, to change his position on fracking. I know that folks in Pennsylvania have said, look, Tom Wolf, you've got uh, Andrew Cuomo to the north, Larry Hogan to the south. They've both seen the light on this. Why haven't you? And I just think that it invigorates the grassroots movement. And because it takes the grassroots movement to win these sorts of campaigns, I think that this precedent here in Maryland, a bipartisan legislative permanent ban on fracking in a state that actually has shale gas reserves is sending some shockwaves right now uh, through uh, all of the communities that are currently uh, fighting to ban fracking and, frankly, sent a major signal to the oil and gas industry here in the United States. So it seems like so-called energy independence and support for U.S. oil and gas production is one of the few things uniting Republicans right now. Do you think that this could signal a move for other Republicans to come out against fracking? Well, you know, the the Florida campaign that I just mentioned, Mark, actually is being led by Republican legislators. So it already in places like Florida is a bipartisan campaign, although the ban in New York was actually done by the governor and by not by the legislature. There were Republicans in New York who were trying to to do a legislative ban up there as well. So I think that the the image of a, a kind of lockstep Republican position on this issue um, doesn't live up to the facts. And that's probably because most of us look at Congress when we consider this issue. And of course, Congress is is a little separated from these state-level fights. We found at Food and Water Watch that Congress seems to be lagging behind the times on the fragging issue. They're still a few years behind, and we've been working hard to bring them up to speed. And I think Maryland being so close to the Capitol will help do that. But you know, the other issue with the energy independence is I was just reading this morning a new article uh, about a report from the liquefied natural gas exporters um, saying that for the first time in years, there's been an increase in exports or the way they put it is imports. But anybody, one person's import is another person's export uh, of natural gas for the first time in about four or five years. And I think that for the U.S. in particular, what we're seeing is that fracking isn't really about domestic energy independence. It's about oil company profits, and the way that they're going to profit is by shipping that gas abroad. Mm -hmm. So as the General Assembly session winds down, can you reflect on how they've done this year regarding the environment? Well, you know, it's going to be hard for me to say they didn't do great because they passed what was the number one piece of environmental legislation. Um, But, you know, there there were other pieces of legislation regarding the environment that that just didn't have not yet, let me put it that way, make it through. Uh, There was a bill to put very minimal monitoring uh, of uh, air emissions from CAFOs on not only on the eastern shore but across the state 
uh, in response to complaints from citizens living near those facilities, which has yet to get a vote. Um, you know, I think that with uh, roughly two weeks left to go in the session, there's still room for the legislature to pass other uh, important bills that have currently been stalled, uh, including one that would uh, ban styrofoam packaging for food items bought at like carry out um, restaurants, which would have uh, major implications. And so I'm hopeful that in addition to this big win on fracking, the legislature will go ahead and pass some of these other bills so that they really have uh, earned the kudos that they certainly earned on fracking on these other issues as well. That's Mitch Jones, Senior Policy Advocate for Food and Water Watch. And Mitch, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mark. The Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Michael Dixon from Morgan State University. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>